because I think there is a distinction between purpose and social impact. There's an overlap, right? There's a Venn diagram. But to your point, like I think everyone is trying to get into the purpose space, whatever that even means anymore. You can be bold and distinct without being controversial, but sometimes you need to be controversial, especially if you're working on a cause that needs attention and that deserves it. And that might be the right play for you too. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Eric Resler. Based in California, Eric is the founder and creative director of Cosmic. They are a for-purpose creative agency helping nonprofits deliver their charitable mission. They work with organizations to benefit people and planet. It's not how they started out, and that's part of the fascinating story. They started out having startups, for-profit organizations, but they pivoted the brave decision to really focus their efforts on purpose. You'll enjoy this episode, but before we dive into it, can I just ask whatever platform you're on, whether it's Spotify, Apple, hit follow, and I'm sure you get future episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, please do leave a review. It makes a real difference to us. Enjoy the episode. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Eric Resler, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks for having me on. You're the founder of Cosmic. What's its purpose? What's its mission? Cosmic is a social impact creative agency. So we work with nonprofits, B Corps, funders, some government organizations, essentially organizations that exist at their core to move humanity forward in one way or another. And our goal is to bring some of our expertise around design and technology and strategy to help them further their missions and make a bigger impact than they could without us. So you got started around 2009 and the world was pretty challenging back then. So I'm thinking economic crises and, uh, you know, tough time to be doing business. But, but what was the sort of thinking behind the business and was there a sort of aha moment about getting started? Yeah, it's interesting because at the time I was, I was pretty young, especially from a professional standpoint. And I was running a freelance design agency really doing design consulting. And at the time, I was living with roommates out of a house and just needed a spot to work because a lot of my roommates were working, you know, restaurant jobs or whatever. And they were trying to get me to go surf or, you know, exercise or ride my bike with them during the day. And I'm trying to, you know, do design work. So finally, I was like, okay, I got to get an office or something. And um, at the time, and I still do, I lived in Santa Cruz, California, went downtown and discovered a co-working space called Next Space. And instantly got kind of connected to the community, got a little desk space, eventually an office space there. And because it was 2009 and everyone had, you know, just been, you know, laid off or fired or quit their jobs and, you know, the economy was in shambles, everyone was basically at next space trying to figure out what the next thing was, which actually aligned quite well with, you know, needing design help. So I got quite quite busy pretty fast and, you know, really got to a point where, I needed help. I needed assistance. I needed support in terms of the demand that was being, you know, uh, required of me as a designer. So I started essentially just kind of building up the consulting business from there and grew it into an agency pretty quickly without having a business plan or a strategy or really any kind of formal approach, just, you know, organically kind of built it out. 
since then, there's been a lot of learning, a lot more structure, a lot more intention uh, as we've grown over the last 13 years. But it started quite organically and, and you know, really in, in a way that was just birthed from my desire to create something and to be creative. And that focus on purpose and helping catalyze, you talk about real world change. Like, was that always the focus? Did it have to be about you know, making the world and society and the planet better? Was that an initial thread for you? No, it it actually isn't how we started. I mean, what I will say is that especially after the really early days, we always turned work down that we couldn't get behind for one reason or another, the way I would describe it. So things we didn't believe in or things that we didn't think really served the world, just more from an ethical standpoint, we, we couldn't really do. Because I think to do design well, it requires a lot of empathy and it requires caring a lot about the outcomes and you know caring a lot about who the work is for and so even before we like really put a stake in the ground around the social impact sector i think that's always been kind of true to our values and our and our kind of moral system as an organization but early on we were doing work outside of the sector we are you know in santa cruz we're pretty well connected to silicon valley and the bay area and there's a lot of startups, a lot of tech startups. So we were doing a lot of startup work, working with consumer brands and um, B2B brands, and really just kind of doing design for anyone who kind of needed design, quote unquote, um, from, a, from a broad standpoint. And after about seven years of that and kind of growing organically, we, we started to kind of plateau and we realized at a certain point we needed to differentiate, we needed to distinguish, we needed a more sharpened point of view around the work that we do and, and a way to specialize. And that's really ultimately what led us to social impact. It's challenging though, right? So you're, especially in your, like you said, you went from sort of unintentional, you know, working on individual pieces of work to sort of suddenly hiring people, being responsible for their their livelihoods, if you like. And, you know, that call comes in from something that doesn't align wholly and making that decision not to take the work. Like, do you remember any moments, any of those calls? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, it was definitely a big leap of faith to some degree. And I think that's always true anytime there's kind of a pivotal moment of growth is that it requires commitment, it requires a leap of faith. And to some degree, all of our biggest growth points in the organization, if they hadn't gone well, could have potentially been the end of the business. But without those kind of bold moves, you can stagnate. And and that's obviously also not good for the business. So there was definitely a transition phase where you know we we did a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and then at some point we you know made a formal announcement, you know repositioned ourselves publicly, and started turning down work that wasn't in the space. There's always going to be a dip at that point when you make a pivot like that, and there was definitely a dip for us. We were somewhat prepared for it, but it was scary. You know, we still luckily had some existing clients that we continued to serve for a while to kind of help us make that transition and and also a number of clients who actually already were in the space so that really helped too we had a bit of a catalog of clients who were already in the social impact sector even though we weren't strictly positioned that way so between all of those things you know ultimately we were able to bridge the gap and i think that was really validating and encouraging and really helped us to continue to you know even sharpen our focus from there and purpose has become a big focus hey businesses are thinking about purpose beyond shareholder value and just making money. And so it, in many ways, kind of a, a growing market, like the opportunity, but the work that you do with nonprofit clients or the work that you sometimes do with charities, 
they don't always have the, the you know the ability to pay they the investments big challenge for them in terms of you know creative work or doing campaigns or buying media or, so i guess it's a, a balancing act but you could see that there was more opportunity than not in that sector I think what we saw, it's a really interesting question, and I'd love to expand upon it a little bit, because I think there is a distinction between purpose and social impact. There's an overlap, right? There's a Venn diagram. But to your point, like I think everyone is trying to get into the purpose space, whatever that even means anymore. And I think we saw that trend even before we decided to make this play. And we made a very conscious choice to not just do purpose work in the sense of like anyone coming to us saying they were trying to kind of find a deeper purpose in their work. We really chose to focus on, you know, a a type of organization that we call social impact organization. And to us, what defines that and what makes that kind of organization distinct from any organization who just wants to have purpose in their work is that they essentially exist to move humanity forward from a social standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. That's why they were formed almost always. If it's not why they were formed, it's why they exist today. They might be market-based in their approach in the sense that they you know, fund their organization through products or services or consulting or some kind of mix. But it's not really like a tack-on thing for them. It's not a CSR campaign or a cause marketing campaign. So I think that really is an interesting distinction because... There's a lot of organizations who have been doing this work, uh, often are nonprofits, but you know more and more these days might not be, right? They might be a B Corp or even like a philanthropy LLC, or there's all these different ways of structuring organizations like this now. And at the end of the day, like we don't really care how you file your taxes. We want to make sure you're authentic in the work that you do and that you are putting impact above profit. And not to say that profit is bad or not part of the equation, but that's not the main driving force behind the work that you're doing. And we want to see that that impact is real, it's actually measurable, and that it's not just something that feels good, but it's actually something that leads to results. And that does weed a lot of people out, frankly. So I think you know that's one thing we saw. To speak a little bit more to kind of the ability for this sector to invest in this work, it's certainly a challenge. But it's a challenge in the corporate world too, especially at a smaller scale. It's not so much a challenge maybe with really large corporations that have, you know, large budgets for this work. But within the social impact sector, I would say that there's a bit of a change happening in organizations understanding how critical this work is to their core success as an organization and finding donors and and funders who understand that as well. And finding a way to invest at the right level for the kind of stage of business that they're at. So, you know, a tiny nonprofit of two people isn't going to hire an agency like ours and shouldn't. But when they're a little further along and they've been bootstrapping for a while and they're ready to really transform and take things to the next level, even though it's not an easy decision, it might be even potentially one of the most expensive investments that they're making that year. They understand the value of it and they're able and willing to do it. And for you personally, like when you made that, that shift and you went public with the fact that you were going to work with authentic mission-driven organizations like was there a little part of you in the back of the mind was was doubting yourself and when did it become almost it sounds like you've kind of the only way you could work now like you this is (laughs) you're connected for the to the mission as well we're all in i mean at this point if we change our mind it's a new business for sure um we've just been committing more deeply ever since we we did go public with it Yeah. Was there fear? I mean, of course, there's fear. Anytime you're saying no to a lot of stuff, um, especially if you're 
an organization like ours that, you know, we're project-based in a lot of our work. We have long-standing relationships with clients, but most of our work is project-based. We help organizations make really large transformations. And organizations only need to do that and only should do that every so often. So we don't have a roster of, you know, 10 or 12 ongoing clients every year that are on contracts that we can like count on. We're out there constantly having to attract new partnerships and relationships. So it's always scary when we're turning down kind of a subset of opportunities that come our way. On the flip side, though, because we've been able to really build credibility and a name in the space for the work that we do, it's really over time paid off. And that was the strategy and the goal with it, of course, in that like we have a bit of a reputation and you know a lot of word of mouth and not to say we re- rely only on that, but it's created more opportunities at this point, I, I can say safely, than it's lost us. And that was that was the goal, not just because it's good business, but also because it allows us to really make a bigger impact as an organization. And, and at the end of the day, our impact only happens by improving the impact of the clients that we work with. So that's really important for us as a mission-driven organization ourselves. And in this revolution of, of the you know, sort of div- digital reach, if you like, you developed a manifesto, which seems to have been quite key to your business and the leadership you offer, the, you know, the clients that you have and the organizations that utilize you. Did that, that come about from the experience of working with clients and seeing what worked and what didn't work? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was also just something we felt was important in terms of sharpening our point of view on the work. And so in order to publish that, we needed real world experience, but it, it also, anytime you publish anything, even an article, but especially something as big as a manifesto, it really requires you to test your ideas and to articulate them. And, you know, when you publish, you're, you're putting yourself out there and you're asking for confirmation, you're asking for criticism, you're asking for dialogue and debate. I think that's really healthy and good. But I also think that it's it's challenging and it's scary in its own way. So, you know, it was something that we felt strongly about as a way to articulate our point of view, our learnings, our, you know, uh, opinions around the importance of this work, how it relates to modern culture, how organizations in this space should be thinking about this work, ultimately to attract people who believe what we believe and who resonate with that and to repel people who don't, you know, as a way to, you know, further kind of connect to the types of organizations that we're trying to reach. So it was a big effort. It was a joint effort from my entire team. It was one that I did spearhead. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done professionally. And I wouldn't want to have to do it again, but at some point I probably will. Um, But it was also a really good growth opportunity. Yeah. And one of the elements of it is talks about mindset change. And, you know, having uh, worked for, led, not for purpose charitable organizations during that time from sort of analog world to uh, digital world. Like fair was a big part of it. Like, and we it ended up that we would do things in a sort of old school way, but on, but online and wouldn't be would fearful about engaging in conversation with potential supporters or the big wide world or, but yeah, you took, you talk about mindset change for organizations who are focused on purpose because I, there's a lot of like, let's not offend Let's be conservative, but that's not the approach that you um, talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of the, the opposite. And I think this is something that we've definitely seen. Um, and I think there's different reasons why organizations might be timid or may not want to kind of rock the boat because either they don't want to offend donors or attract bad PR. I think especially as the world has become more and more polarized each year, 
that fear might be growing even for some organizations. What we've seen, though, is that although, of course, there are cases of, you know, nonprofits or social impact organizations taking a bad step or making a bad call and getting a lot of bad PR, I would say that's absolutely the exception to the rule. And the rule really is supporters, donors, and the everyday kind of citizen wants to hear more from your organization and wants you to have a stronger opinion, a stronger approach, a more kind of crystallized message and not just more noise in this kind of ever noisy digital space that we're all in today. And so I think it's to a social impact organization's detriment to try and play things safe. And you can be bold and distinct without being controversial, but sometimes you need to be controversial, especially if you're working on a cause that needs attention and that deserves it. And that might be the right play for you too. I think we really need to, as a sector, kind of to a degree, stop kind of operating from a place of fear and scarcity and instead really work towards embracing how we can be leaders in the space individually, what our unique strengths are as as leaders, as even staff or, you know, consultants or whatever, however you show up in the space, really tapping into your knowledge, your expertise, your experiences, and sharing those and using that kind of collective action and that kind of network approach to doing the work in a way that's distinct. And I think that when organizations are too timid or when they don't share even their mistakes, but especially their successes, which is even more common, oddly, it's really doing a disservice to the entire sector and to you know some of these issues that are really important to move forward. Is there a client that you think of it with a certain amount of pride and think, well, they came to us with a scarcity mindset. They came to us with fear in their eyes <laughs> and you you kind of used your manifesto, used your way of working to sort of shift the, the dial for them. Is there something you can talk to? Well, I think a lot of times by the time people get to us, they've learned the hard lesson of kind of coming from that space and they've overcome it on their own, just to be honest. Like we can help kind of coax clients into a certain way, but Honestly, people usually don't come to us with that scarcity mindset. Sometimes they do. Sometimes we can kind of help reframe for them. I think one thing we do a lot is we help clients kind of understand how they can be bold, how they can be distinct and differentiate and develop a, a keener point of view. Not because we're like kind of coaching them into, you know, out of a place of fear, but more because we're able to kind of see things from an outside perspective and help crystallize what's distinct about them. That I would say is honestly much more common for us where if you're doing this work all the time, every day, and you're so in it, it can sometimes be hard to see the forest from the trees. And we can come in fresh and have some, you know, general broad knowledge of different focus areas and just the sector and how it operates, but also kind of come in with a beginner's mind and say, hey, you describe what you do this way. And that doesn't make any sense to us. Like, what, what do you actually mean by that? Oh, okay, this is what you mean. Have you thought about saying it this way instead? That's actually much more intuitive and straightforward. And even though you might have, you know, a small niche of people that you're trying to reach, you might understand it that way. I think it's still important to kind of appeal to the broader community that you're trying to reach. And, and we're big believers in using clear language and, you know, not making things overly academic unless it's really appropriate to do it that way. So I think there's definitely times that we can help people be more bold and kind of show them that they can do it and they can own it and they deserve it. But then I would say more often, we're really helping to just kind of clarify a story 
and to frame a story and their impact story in a more intentional way just based on doing it with so many organizations at this point. And focus on mission and focus on authenticity seems to be really important. And that's where, you know, you can get off off track. Like you just if you're always taking, you know, how you how an organization engages people, how it talks about itself publicly, how it, you know, reflects its impact. Like going back and being really focused on its mission, like it's that's probably at the core of the most important piece. I think it is. And I think it's often we're showing clients things they already know, but that they've they've started to stray from or they're distracted by feeling like they must be something else or they must do all the things. And I think like one of the points in the manifesto is thriving in a niche within the larger ecosystem. And I think that's something that we often help clients with because they come in and they see that, you know, they may be working on, you know, any given issue. And almost always there's going to be tens, if not hundreds of other organizations also working at a similar intersection or some kind of overlap with your organization. And that's good. You know, often we need many organizations working on these issues because they are so intractable often. And so we help clients figure out what can you really own? What are your unique strengths? What's your perspective and your point of view that's distinct from everyone else's because of how you started or because of your network or whatever it is that gives you a distinct vantage point and distinct set of experiences? And how can we lean into those things? And how can you focus on those things and do those things really well instead of falling into the trap of like mission creep or trying to do too many things or spinning up a whole like constellation of programs because of grants funding that you've gotten over the years. And those things just start to kind of grow off the body of the organization as these weird extra limbs that don't actually quite connect logically to the rest of it. So a lot of times we're helping organizations kind of crystallize their thinking, their strategy, their positioning, and that unlocks an impact story that's more distinct and emotionally driven and clear to their overall community and just one point from the manifesto actually which i break the starvation cycle what what does that relate to so i think the starvation cycle is is actually quite complex in this sector because it's not any it's not just like one thing it's also kind of in itself an intractable problem I, i think it stems from a lack of funding essentially like the sector is just underfunded there's not enough funding to go around and most organizations don't have the proper amount of funding to achieve the missions that they're trying to achieve. And, and you know, often the missions are quite bold and lofty. And so there's there's that element of it. But even still, I think there's traditionally been a culture in philanthropy where grants are awarded, grants are restricted, people aren't being paid what they're worth or what they need to even survive, you know, wherever they might live. So even just kind of talking about kind of pay scale in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector especially is just not market rate and hasn't been for a long time. So it's not a sustainable revenue model. So looking at how these organizations can become sustainable internally in a way that is balanced, right? So it's like the myth of the overhead percentage being the all, the end-all be-all metric of effectiveness of a nonprofit. And, you know, this has been debated to death at this point. This is not a novel thing, but it's still pervasive in the space. And it's still something that we see nonprofits use in their messaging around, you know, 100% of your donation is going to go to program work and not staff or overhead. And it's just, it's perpetuated this cycle of essentially like unsustainable or starvation thinking and kind of looking at the work from a place of not being sustainable and not being 
fully enabled to do it in the right way. And so I think that's a learned behavior and it's one that can be kind of hard to break out of. And we see it happening sometimes with clients that come to us who say things like, well, we don't have capacity for that, or that's a little bit of a stretch for us, or we can't afford that. And sometimes that's, you know, the numbers just don't add up and and it's true. But I think some of that is also kind of learned behavior around this underfunded sector has has basically taught organizations and staff and leaders within those organizations to feel the pressure of not being sustainably funded and sustainably supported, which then leads to short-term thinking and not looking at how to build out longer-term successful and sustainable organizations. And we need sustainable long-term organizations to solve these problems. This cannot be solved by organizations that get spun up and spun down because we need that shared knowledge and that track record and that deep understanding of the communities that we're trying to serve to be able to make real progress here. We need a through line. And if organizations are constantly burning through people because they can't pay them well, they can't keep them, or programs are being spun up and spun down, I, you know, I think that's a big reason why we haven't made more progress on some of these issues. Yeah. And I think that, you know, potentially the lack of innovation um, or the potential for doing, trying things that may not work because of sort of the starvation mentality you like is dangerous. And I've seen this a few times, actually, like charities or nonprofits who would talk about, you know, 100% of your donation will go to the program, the delivery, the, the you know, the frontline support. And I get where that nonprofit's coming from. But the truth is, there's often a really wealthy donor who's, you know, covering the back office costs. And actually, it's just a sleight of hand, really. And actually, it's le- potentially letting down the rest of the sector um, by not fully sharing the truth. Like, <laughs> someone's got, you know, the money coming keep the lights on to, to pay the bills is coming from somewhere uh, so yeah i i it's frustration for me on that on that front sometimes yeah i mean i think i totally agree and and again th- there's good reasons why nonprofits do this and you know it is effective in terms of garnering donations but again short term versus long term you might hit your end of year fundraising goals but overall the sector is perpetuating this myth that overhead is bad by doing that right and of course overhead is bad if it's too much, right? If there's too much of that money is not seeing its way to programs, but even more than that to impact, right? I think it's like more about are these organizations actually effective in making progress or if not making progress, at least learning so that we can make progress in the future. It's not always true that just because there's good intentions behind these organizations that they are worth funding, frankly. Some aren't and that's okay and that's just gonna be how it is. Even like really good intentions can go you know, without actual impact. And I think there is, there should be scrutiny in the nonprofit sector. I think sometimes it's unfair to the nonprofits. And I think that that perpetuates the starvation cycle. On top of that, you brought up another interesting point that would be good to dig into further, which is this kind of, I think it ties into the original point around this kind of almost like timid nature sometimes that these organizations have. And again, that's a, that's a learned behavior because they're so sometimes unfairly scrutinized on the on the flip side, right? Which has led to kind of a, a lack of innovation and a lack of being willing to try things that might fail. I think failure is like very highly frowned upon in this space in a different way than it is in the corporate sector, where actually the stakes are much, sometimes, you know, much lower, but it, it almost doesn't matter. I think sometimes we, we, again, look at this from a short-term perspective, where we do need some moonshots every once in a while to solve some of these issues. And 
it's an interesting ethical conundrum because there are so many proven organizations that have a proven impact, a proven model that are just underfunded. And so there's a very good argument to be made for let's just fund those organizations and stop getting distracted by these moonshots. But on the other side of things, those organizations maybe even started as moonshots, right? So I think we need kind of a healthy mix in the sector where we need some organizations who are willing and able to try things from a more from a new way of thinking and kind of throwing out what's been done before and looking at problems from a unique point of view and being willing to take some bold bets where maybe nine out of 10 of the times it's going to fail. But that one time out of 10, if it does succeed, the potential for impact is so big, it makes up for the nine times that it failed, whether that's one organization trying 10 experiments or 10 different organizations trying 10 different experiments. And on the flip side, we still need to fund organizations that do have a proven model where there's just a lack of funding. So I don't know what the right balance is there, but I think especially if we're talking about you know, wealthy donors who have the ability to take bets on who they invest in, I, I think that's a, a potentially interesting way to think about maybe how they could round out their portfolio and, and be willing to fund some things that might fail and then to publish the learnings of the failures so that the rest of the sector can learn from it. Absolutely. And changing tack for a bit and reflecting on you know your earlier years, is there any, you know, you're now focused on a career that's helping to establish, helping the world be a better place, people and planet, but there's sort of hallmarks or the foundations that created when you were younger that sort of you look back on now and say, Do you know what, that experience probably indicated that I would be focused on something deeper later in life. I, I never thought I would be in this space. It wasn't intentional. I think I've always known I would do something creative from uh, in in my professional career i didn't know exactly what it would be all the time but i never saw myself getting into you know doing social impact work especially in this way so it's a really interesting place that i've landed and i'm so glad that i did because we get to work with some of the smartest people in the world some of the most you know thankless people in the world doing you know really amazing work behind the scenes i'd like to change that for a lot of these people i think it needs to be front and center and just really genuinely good humans. And I think that that is so rewarding and makes every day worth it, even when times are hard or when the work is hard or the work is challenging, which it often is. If the work is emotional, that really goes a long way. So yeah, it's funny because it wasn't my plan. It was never, it was never something I saw myself doing, but I could never see going any other direction at this point. And creative talents showing through pretty early in life? Yeah, I mean, at least attempts. <laughs> I don't know about successes. <laughs> um, you know, pretty early in life, really drawn to just, you know, creative expression through art, through music, through photography, through video, really, especially when I was able to get into the digital realm and start using the computer to create that, that really clicked for me and allowed me to kind of uh, like spearhead a direction and a, and a kind of a, a focus within the creative and the art world. And so it's been innate in me you know, since I was young and continues to be something that's just part of my being, even today, even outside of work, I'm constantly tinkering and creating music, doing, you know, analog photography, whatever it is at the time that like, allows me to, you know, create art to be expressive and to really just kind of share my experience with the world with others. Was there a mentor earlier in life? Or was there maybe it's someone you didn't even know that someone famous, but was there like, do you remember when you were younger getting sort of permission from someone to go in this direction? I think I was lucky to have, you know, a supporting family, you know, sometimes more than others. I think my mom especially is an academic and believes really strongly in 
education, which I do as well, but I don't fit into the standard, especially in America, the standard kind of educational path. I'm a college dropout, a design school dropout more specifically. I don't do well with structured learning. I don't do well with classes. I don't do well with homework and assignments. I was able to get by pretty well on my own without doing much studying, but it just wasn't the path for me. And so there was definitely some, some pushback around kind of going out on my own, especially early in life and not having structure or a guaranteed path or following the normal path. But at the same time, there was always still a lot of, I'm lucky that I grew up in and was raised privileged enough to have the time and the resources necessary to pursue creativity. And then, you know, at a certain point, having to find a way on my own to do that and to sustain myself financially. So yeah, I I had permission in certain ways. I had pushback in other ways, but ultimately I think that balance was good. So if you've got a really good co-founder who's really big on structure, like gives you permission to be unstructured, (laughs) how, how do you deal with structure these days? Yeah, I mean, I have an amazing team that I have different team members that kind of round out my shortcomings around around structure, around planning, around time, those kind of things that are deficits in my character. So, you know, Lisa on my team is really critical in a lot of our our planning and our structure. She's essentially our, our COO, and that's not her official title, but that's basically what, what she does. My entire team is super talented in their own rights and, and what they do, you know, Karen on our team is our project manager who really helps kind of keep things singing and moving smoothly. And, you know, I, I kind of think of her as like the the conductor of an orchestra, which what we do is really a pretty delicate orchestra, especially as we're managing multiple clients. And then, you know, we have amazing top tier talent that we've been able to attract over the years doing the, you know, the creative work, the production work, the development work that, you know, each bring their own kind of skills and, and perspectives to the work, which which keeps it fun, interesting, and allows us to be sustainable as an organization. Yeah, having been on the charitable side of briefing a agency, you know, like it was a mission-focused campaign, raising money at Christmas time. And, you know, we, we sort of did the, the background piece, gave them the parameters, talked about what we wanted to achieve, all of those things. And then these are sort of like, they go away, design, think, come back, present. And I was, you know, like I remember sitting in those those meetings going, this is, these people are pretty ballsy, eh? Because it's quite personal work when it's, you know, designed. Like it's, it comes from, like you talked about earlier, yeah. from a, from the heart or from a passionate perspective. And then you got to put your ideas out, you got to present it to the client. And there's that moment when the client's like, they, they either hate it, they love it, they're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But what are you like? Are you, quite an emotional um, around that process? Do you, are you are found yourself getting braver and braver the more that you do it? I think over the years, I've become less personally attached to the work in a healthy way. And, and what I mean by that is I don't take criticism personally. I think when you're first starting, especially if you, if you care about the work and you put a lot of effort and time into it, that validation of especially kind of in a client agency relationship of the client loving it and falling in love with your idea and supporting it and understanding it is part of a natural inclination as you get started. And then over time, you learn that that is not necessarily even the best kind of metric of how good the work is, frankly. And so I think over the years, I've personally learned and I've been instilling into my team a level of healthy detachment from the work, both in terms of like how it's received as well as how ingrained you allow yourself to get into the work. Because I do 
frankly think that there is a healthy balance there. And if you dedicate yourself too fully to any kind of work, but even work that matters like this, it's unhealthy for you as a balanced individual. And you need the ability to check out, you need the ability to live your own life and detach from work so that when you do work, you can show up as your best self and you can show up fully and not be burnt out because it's really easy to get burnt out in the agency world. It's really easy to get burnt out in the social impact world, especially when you're dealing with really emotionally driven, difficult, sometimes existential issues, especially if we're talking about climate action. And if you get too attached to the work itself or the outcomes of the work in an unhealthy way, you know that's not sustainable either. So I think we look at it more, I think the way that we run our work from a cultural standpoint is also a little different. Like it's not so much the, we do a bunch of research. We, you know, we go away and work our magic and we come out with this huge, you know, ta-da presentation. It is much more iterative. It is much more inclusive and collaborative. So it's a little less risky in that way that we've done three months of work that the client hates. Like we meet weekly with clients. We have standing meetings. We, we run sprints. So it's a little bit more like we build a team together and as much as we do lead the process and we do generate ideas, there aren't as many big unveilings or surprises along the way. And I think that helps kind of buffer that potential kind of disaster scenario where hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months of work have been done that don't land well or don't sit right with the client. And what do you do away from the agency? Like what, how, what does life, life look like? You're a parent, you live in California, Santa Cruz. What, what's life like outside of work? Yeah, I mean, these days I, I'm a parent of of young children, so most, if not all, of my free time is is mostly focused on on that, and you know, supporting my family and having the time to spend with my kids, which I love doing. I do also feel very strongly about kind of maintaining a lot of the things that matter to me outside of that and build my own personal identity. It is really easy to lose a lot of that when you're raising kids, of course, and for good reason. And to some degree, that's a sacrifice you need to be willing to make, I think, to a reasonable degree if you're going to be a good parent. But I, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to stay healthy, exercising, trying to pursue other kind of modes of creativity that really fulfill me personally. For me right now, that's music and photography. But that I do tend to kind of collect hobbies and cycle through them. So, you know, at other times, it's been surfing or climbing or whatever it is at the time that kind of drives me. I really like learning. And so, I'm a big fan of like collecting a new hobby and going from complete novice to like just past that phase because you learn so rapidly there. I enjoy that. So I commonly am kind of like collecting new hobbies and re-falling in love with old ones. So right now for me, that's photography. I've been really kind of detached from photography for years and then I'll just fall right back in love with it and be super deep on it again. For me right now, that's getting back into shooting film, which is the most inconvenient objectively stupid thing you could do, but also just so rewarding at the same time. And do you put that stuff out into the world? Do you share that? (laughs) I'm trying to get better about that. I do. I share a lot of, you know, it's interesting. I share a lot of stuff these days just with like friends and family versus publicly, publicly, although I'm starting to do a little bit more of that. I'm also like not on much social media. So that's, you know, naturally where that kind of stuff would be shared these days. I have spun up a personal blog uh, for my photography because I think publishing is good and helpful for creativity. So that's at my personal URL of uh, eWrestler.com. But I just warn listeners, it's very sparse at this point. But I do hope to be building on that. And, you know, we, the world seems to be facing some really 
existential challenges. And we talked actually before we came online around, you know, you've had some rain recently, which will mean there'll be less fires over the this next period or the you know, huge environmental issues, big, big social, socio-political issues. Um, you know, like as you do the work that you do and you help the organizations deliver on their on their mission and try and do their bit, what are the things that it that when you're not drowned by the negativity, what are the things that excite you about the, that work and you look for the future? Interesting because as we see all of these problems emerge, it, it's so easy to get into a state of overwhelm and apathy and despair and just like losing faith in humanity. And I think, you know, you could make a pretty good case for things kind of moving backwards in a lot of ways these days. I think I'm very, at the same time, and, you know, trust me, day to day, I might give you a different answer on how hopeful I feel about where things are going. What I will say is that we get to experience firsthand really smart, passionate people working really hard on these issues and in certain cases, making good progress on them too. So I, I do remain overall optimistic that we'll, we'll get through some of this. I don't think it's going to be easy, but I'm not a complete, you know, collapse uh, subscriber. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, at the same time, like I do think that there is a very real and very likely chance that as humanity kind of gets through some of these really big challenges, I think there's going to be a lot of people who unjustly suffer. I think that's a shame. And I think some of that is certainly could have been prevented if not for, you know, corporate greed and even just maybe like lack of organization as kind of a species ultimately, right? But especially as as governments or as collective groups that, you know, in hindsight, if we'd made some smarter choices earlier, especially if we're talking about kind of climate it's a shame to think what it could have looked like if we had gotten our stuff together a little bit better as a species. Eric Rizla, Master, thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 